HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome food and travel writer Sylvie Begar. In this episode, we'll talk to Sylvie about Real Cassoulet, her memoir, Cassoulet Confessions, and we'll hear Sylvie's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Today, as we like to do each season, we are journeying to France. We're going due south, diving deep into the renowned French rustic and complex stew, cassoulet. Julia refers to it quite humbly with the American translation of French baked beans. This is pretty ironic given the amount of debate about not only its place of origin in France, but also which ingredients constitute an authentic cassoulet. Now, Julia writes in Mastering the Art of French Cooking, and I'm paraphrasing because she has rather a lot to say about it. This is what Julia says. Cassoulet is a rich combination of beans baked with meats, as much a part of southwestern France as Boston baked beans are of New England. The composition of cassoulet is, and this is Julia's words, in typical French fashion, the subject of infinite dispute. As cassoulet is native to a relatively large region of France, each part of which has its own specialties, 
An extremely good cassoulet can be made anywhere out of beans and whatever of its traditional meats are available. The important item is flavor, which comes largely from the liquid the beans and meats are cooked in. You can watch Julia prepare cassoulet in episode 39 of The French Chef, and stay tuned for season two of Julia on HBO Max, where the cassoulet just might be dramatized by Sarah Lancashire and Isabella Rossellini going tete-a-tete. This is all to say it's a stew that generates a lot of opinions and emotions. Someone who knows the power and allure of cassoulet is food and travel writer Sylvie Begar. Born in Geneva, Switzerland, into a Franco-Jewish family, she's lived and worked in New York City for many decades. Her work has appeared everywhere from the New York Times to Food and Wine, Forbes, Edible, and Travel and Leisure. She also writes in French, contributing to Le Figaro and other French publications. She co-authored our friend Daniel Belude's cookbook, Danielle, My French Cuisine. She joins us today to take us down the cassoulet rabbit hole and discuss her memoir, Cassoulet Confessions, Food, France, Family, and the Stew That Saved My Soul. Welcome to the podcast, Sylvie. Thank you so much, Ted. Thank you so much for having me. And I have to say, there's no rabbit in cassoulet. It is a rabbit hole, but I've <laughs> never seen rabbit cooked in cassoulet. It could be, though. Yes, well, that's a great place to start. And where I wanted to start was sort of defining terms. And I was going to start by saying, like, did Julia get it right? Is cassoulet just beans with meat? Or does it really need to be defined by specific ingredients? Well, I think she got it right. I really do. Um, And I think she got it right because she also goes into the infinite dispute Right. And in fact, if you continue to read the six pages that she devotes to cassoulet um, in Mastering the Art, you you arrive at the point where she says a note on the order of battle. And I love that because um, that's sort of what got me interested in this dish is I heard about all these battles and the fact that, uh, you know, one chef believed cassoulet needed to have partridge and another chef believed that without, um, you know, lamb, it wasn't really a cassoulet. And then there's the saucisse de Toulouse and all of that. And I thought that that was, uh, you know, my kind of battle. And what do, do you think you cracked it or discovered why this one dish people are so – I mean, there are others that – in the world, but this is quite specific, especially because it's a dish that traditionally French, French cassoulet has a lot of ingredients. More, It is more than beans and one meat and some liquid. Where does this kind of passionate, you know, stamping their foot about what's right and wrong come from? So I think that there are, in fact, several dishes like that in the French repertoire. I mean, just to, to talk about a few, one that comes to mind is bouillabaisse. I mean, the mm. bouillabaisse in Marseille, people will absolutely fight over what kind of fish go into the bouillabaisse. And I believe it's the same thing in Alsace about choucroute. Um, I don't think people, you know, kill themselves over bœuf bourguignon. Um, <laughs> no, I think we all agree, you know, what bœuf bourguignon is. And I think Julia is the champion of bœuf bourguignon. Um, but cassoulet is a different story, and it also has this incredible power 
on on people. And it took me more than 10 years to understand why I became obsessed with cassoulet. So why? Ha. So um, why? Because in fact, um, and I don't want to give away the whole uh, story in, in cassoulet confessions, but it reminded me of ancestral foods and heritage um, that I didn't know existed in my mind. Oh, I, I'm kind of struck by it. And this this may make perfect sense to you or seem like a total non sequitur, but it's sort of like the arguments over hummus, right? Where does it come from? Who owns hummus? And there is no answer because probably it's impossible. Do you think it's a, a similar, because right, cassoulet has really ancient uh, roots as well as a dish. Yes, well, some people believe that cassoulet was invented around the 1300s uh, during the Hundred uh, Year War in France. But then other people say, well, but there wasn't any, you know, serious white bean yet in Europe because we all know the white beans came from the New World. So how could that be? In fact, there was a stew um, that the Arab, um, you know, population often made with meat and fava bean. And maybe that's the ancestor of cassoulet. And that's how the battles start. <laughs> they start, I mean, they start- at 500, 600 years ago. That's right. And it's not only about the ingredients, but it's how it started. And then as um, you know, I discovered, it's also about which vessel do you cook the cassoulet in? I mean, the battles are just everywhere. Well, I was going to ask you about that in a bit, but let's pick up on that now because I was fascinated by that. And I knew that it was meant to be in like a traditional sort of um, uh, terracotta yes. dish. But then you you give a fair amount of attention, usually through the voice of, of the key chef that you um, profile in in the book. But I, 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 I had to even look it up and I couldn't get very far. What is the difference between a cassole and a grassal and how important are they? Do they really matter to make a good cassoulet? Well, I can tell you that Julia uh, knew about the cassole, the rotund clay pot, uh, and she knew that the most authentic uh, cassole was made with um, soil or clay, I should say, from Isel, the village of Isel, which is in the old Languedoc Roussillon. Now the region is called Occitanie. Um, but I went to the village of Isel. I went to see, um, you know, that that clay. Um, I touched it with my fingers. I went to see the different factories and the different potters, and to understand how this really works. Just to go back to your question, the cassole is a rotund uh, clay pot. And actually, uh, my friends uh, at Clay Coyote um, in Minnesota, the pottery studio that originally had created a pot for Paula Wolford's book, Cuisine of Southwestern France, it's on the cover. Um, mm. They have created a cassole that I find perfect um, for cassoulet and it's beautiful and uh, rotund. But then you have something called a grésal, which is a conical um, sort of uh, cassole, if you will, if you will. But it has a spout, right? And so my um, cassoulet master, the 
one of the heroes of my book, Eric Garcia, um, actually believed that the Grisal were not Castle. And why would there be a spout? Because you don't want to anything. You don't want to drop anything when you have this monster bean and meat stew that's sort of within, um, you know, this the the stock. Uh, basically, you you don't want to lose any of this liquid. So, um, you know, these are mysteries. They remain mysteries. And who uses a grassal instead of a cassole? Is it in a certain region in France, or or is it even within the heart of Cassoulet and Carcassonne? You'll find both. Yes, you will find both because there, because it's France, and because there are several opinions about every potential, you know ingredient and way to cook this dish. And I presume that there actually is some sort of scientific basis of why, maybe not between the castle and the crassel, but the use of a terracotta pot and the way that it distributes heat and the way that it is or is not porous makes some difference. Did you get into that? Um, You know, I really stayed with what Eric Garcia believed because he became my guide through this entire quest. And he really did not want to know about the Grizzal. Yes, which is also very French, right? Right. Cesa, it is this, this, this vessel. And why would you question it? And why would you do it any other way? Exactly. This is how we do it. (laughs) <laughs> and and then there's a period, you know? <laughs> yes. For those who have not spent time in France or with a very French person, that is a very common answer in French culture to a question. C'est ça. It is. It is this way. Yes. And, and that just means conversation over. I'm not going to explain it to you because it, you just need to accept that this is the way you do it. Or how something That's right. Goes, right. That's right. And do you think that's different? Does that exist in, in 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 Francophone Switzerland, or is it uniquely French? You know, I believe it does exist. I mean, if you think of cheese fondue, right, and mm. all the different kinds of mixes that you can put in the, in what we call the cacolon, um, yes, it exists. I mean, you go to to Fribourg, and they're going to tell you to put, you know, moitié moitié cheese. A Gruyere and uh, and uh, and Appenzeller maybe, or and then you go somewhere else and they have a whole other um, recipe. I mean, isn't it the same here in in the U.S.? Well, I guess maybe I grew up in Kansas City, and certainly with barbecue, I think if you asked a Kansas Cityan, you know, what do you think of vinegar based barbecue, they probably would say something like either yuck, what, or that's not barbecue. So maybe maybe that's a good, and right. It's also, I think with barbecue, those differences are very defined by regionalism, which I think under the regions are closer together in France, but underpins the, the, some of the key differences in cassoulet. And just for those who maybe haven't eaten cassoulet or haven't made it or haven't read your book yet, maybe you could talk about just, the typical ingredients that yes. that would be found in a cassoulet. Absolutely. So the typical cassoulet has uh, a layer of beans, and we can debate which beans later, uh, but it has a layer of beans at the bottom, and then it has different kinds of meats. Usually, um, I mean, Julia used goose, uh, but I think today we use duck and duck confit mostly. Um, 
we use pork and some people add lamb. Um, some people in Carcassonne add partridge in the hunting season instead of duck confit. And then you have, you know, some vegetables, you have maybe two or three carrots. Um, and of course, you've made your own stock, or we hope you made your own stock. Um, and you have the fresh herbs. And then what's really important is pigskin and um, also uh, ham hock. You, you need the bones and you need that, that uh, sort of gelatin to create a crust. And the crust of the cassoulet is really the magical part of the stew because no one knows exactly how that crust happens. And I have seen people put uh, breadcrumbs on top. Actually, the Toulouse recipe, um, at the end of my memoir, I have a few recipes and I do have a, a Toulouse recipe with breadcrumbs. I've seen people put cheese on top of cassoulet. Actually, I just ate a cassoulet um, that had cheese on top. So uh, to me, the thing about what you're describing in the cassoulet is, yes, it's beans and meat, but it's also this this idea of like layering flavor. And it, it, it in many ways, I think of it, it's kind of like a peasant dish. Like I assume that one of the reasons it was invented way back when was that it was a winter dish that took advantage of bean, dried beans that were saved and root vegetables and actually a scarcity of meat. So you used sort of what you had in bits and pieces to make the dish go farther for more people and do you think of it that way or do you think it was a very specific, you know, kind of refined adding of elements? No, I totally agree with you. I think that uh, the main part of the dish um, are the beans. Um, and absolutely, it's whatever meat you have lying around, uh, you know, a piece of pork that's left over from something else and some and some pig skin and uh, maybe maybe a sausage and a half and, you know, those kinds of things put together. The layer of flavor, of course, comes mostly from the stock, uh, which is why it's important to make the, the stock from scratch if you can. Now, in my book, In Castellet Confessions, I have a recipe uh, that I called Gateway Cassoulet, uh, <laughs> where, where, you know, and I, and I was very worried about, you know, public publishing this uh, this uh, recipe because people would say, oh, come on, you, this is all about slow food and slow cooking and authentic and three days. Um, and then here you are giving us, a, you know, the express recipe. But um, no worry, the express recipe still takes about a day. Um, <laughs> As opposed so, to three, which is the, other, the traditional. Yes, exactly. And uh, store-bought stock, you know, works fine as well. But what's interesting about um, cassoulet, yes, of course, all these battles and the ingredients and the history of it. But if, if we move a little bit to the, to the present, um, you know, now that I'm going around uh, basically the country talking to people about cassoulet, I am amazed at the stories that emerge. Um, and it seems as though... Once someone has tasted a cassoulet, they never forget it. And it, it, it remains some kind of a highlight of their culinary, you know, uh, 
life. And I, I don't know if it's like that with bouillabaisse or, or choucroute, but uh, it certainly is this way about cassoulet. Yeah, that's interesting. I would go out on a limb and say it's not. I've heard more people wax nostalgic and 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 stuff, but but I've spent more time in Carcassonne than Marseille. So we'll we'll take a break and we'll be back with more from writer Sylvie Bagar about the life changing power of cassoulet. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back. We're talking to food and travel writer Sylvie Bagar about her memoir, Cassoulet Confessions, Food, France, Family, and the Stew That Saved My Soul. So Sylvie, how did writing about cassoulet lead you into such a personal story about your family history in Geneva? So in fact, in 2008, I went to Carcassonne um, as a food writer to... Um, report back uh, on the history of cassoulet. I was working for a wonderful magazine named Food Arts. Some of you may remember um, Michael Batterbury and Ariane Batterbury were the uh, editors. And um, and I thought it would be a simple story. I uh, basically uh, left uh, New York, went to Paris, switched planes there, got to Toulouse and uh, took a train to Carcassonne. I was uh, bent on meeting a few chefs and eating uh, some beans and uh, writing about the history of cassoulet and coming back to New York and moving along. But in fact, uh, what I discovered there sort of changed my life. Um, And I became absolutely obsessed with the dish. I came back to New York. I wrote a different story for another magazine. Then I pitched something, a profile of the cassoulet master I had met there. Um, I wrote about the Universal Academy of Cassoulet, that incredible uh, association of, uh, in defense of the terroir of, uh, of the Languedoc uh, region and now the Occitanie. And uh, basically, uh, I never stopped thinking about cassoulet. People were actually making fun of me. And it took years. It took years until one day I realized that there was something else going on and I needed to take some time off from my life and just face what this was all about. And what did you discover? I discovered that the cassoulet was just a thread. It was a metaphor. And uh, I was ready to to basically get... uh, through this thread and understand 
the difference between the way I grew up um, in a mini Downton Abbey on Lake Geneva and uh, the kind of home uh, warmth um, and uh, in a way, just like you said earlier, the peasant uh, cuisine of southwestern France. And so do you think that it was only it was also sort of a moment in time that the this sort of deep emotional feelings that go into the the history and making of cassoulet just triggered something in yourself that were resolved because you sort of talk about in the book how your your parents were not super foodies or and they were not really even eating cassoulet were they well exactly and and that's sort of how the the first chapter of the book starts is that I never ate cassoulet in the dining room of my childhood. And that sentence sort of led me to, well, what did I eat? And how did we eat? And why did we eat like this? And why was my mother eating, um, you know, non-fat vegetable broth uh, before every meal? And, 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 and that's how I was able to unravel uh, the history of my family, some of it uh, pretty dramatic during World War II um, in France. And it was by sort of, um, you know, I'm looking at the cover of the book and uh, there's a little girl with curly hair there, you know, peeking inside the castle and and, then obviously it's me. (laughs) Well, just to go deep on this, I, I loved a book called The Nightingale, and there's more than one book called The Nightingale, but I don't know if you've read it, which was written by an American writer named Kristen Hanna. And it's pure, she specializes in uh, books that where she does, they're pure fiction, but she does such deep research into the real time period that they have this, this like larger than life thing. And it, it's all about the French resistance. And in particular, part of it takes place in this part of the world near the Pyrenees where France crosses into Spain. And I know I, I picked up on part of, you know, your family history is complex like Cassoulet's history because it's about movement and, and change within a certain region and not not fixed. Do you, do you think that's also it, that, that, that Cassoulet represents multiple cultures and that was really where, where you were living? Yes, absolutely. And then there's also the sort of the... the difference between the truth uh the re- you know and the reality uh and the lies and the truth um and uh i mean that may have less to do with cassoulet and more to do with family per se um but i did and sort of discover that uh you know there are secrets under the crust really if you go digging well, and I, I feel like World War II in particular, or any kind of, you know, may come out of what's happening in Ukraine or out of Syria, that that people do things that they normally wouldn't do often to survive or because they have to or because they're faced with incredibly difficult life choices, but there's shame in that. And so lies are told because it's easier. It's easier emotionally. It's easier publicly. Exactly. And, yeah. And I think that, you know, without ruining it, because I think it's quite revelatory, the, the, you find out all these things. And I, I'm assuming the things you write about who your father was and about your the history of your mother's family in France, were those things you did not know until you started digging? No, some of, some of them I knew. Um, but, you know, there's a difference between hear, hearing things when you're a child, hearing, you know, kind of the lore, the story, the the, you know 
Um, for example, I, I'm thinking back to hearing my mother talking about her older brother and, you know, how he was a hero and he died when he was 26 in the Résistance, not in the south, but closer to Grenoble in this area called the Vercors um, in the mountain range. And, and I actually um, wrote about this mountain range as a travel story for the Washington Post a while back. Um, so there's a difference between, you know, staring at this uh, black and white image of of this photograph of, of this young man in a soldier's uniform on my mother's nightstand throughout my childhood and actually trying to understand who this man was and what did he live through and what were the lies that were told, you know, how did he die? And so, yes, I did discover um, a number of things while writing the book. Well, and I also think there's something um, that, I mean, I know it through my own culture as a Jewish person, but that Jewish people live in, in multiple cultures at once because they're good at assimilation. So they can be Jewish and French or Jewish and Swiss or Jewish and Swiss and French all at the same time. But that is a different experience than people who maybe feel wholly French or Swiss or American, maybe because they're Christian and it's part of the the majority culture. Yes, absolutely. And my grandparents, my mother's parents, lived a completely secular life um, in Paris. Um, my mother was born in 1925. And uh, until that fateful knock on the door, uh, July 16, 1942, she had never thought about the fact that she was Jewish. Um, it was just not part of their landscape. They celebrated Christmas with a turkey like people do in France, and uh, they painted uh, eggs at Easter, and and France was life, everything. And I, I wanted to ask, because I know much less about Switzerland, and maybe just transitioning back from, from the heavy stuff to food, yeah. as someone who grew up in Switzerland as well, do you think, do the Swiss have a very different approach to food than the French or the Francophone Swiss, at least very similar? What, what was, what's been your experience? Well, my experience, and I've been asked this before, is there such a thing as Swiss cuisine? And my answer is yes, absolutely. There is a Swiss cuisine. But if you've been to Switzerland or if you know about Switzerland, you know that Switzerland is really three or even four national languages um, in very specific geographical part of the country. And of course, each of the, these cultures, so we have French, we have German, Swiss German, and Italian, as well as the language Romanche, um, which is spoken, you know, in, in the East. Uh, but each of these cultures also comes with its own cuisine and its own traditions. I mean, the um, I think we can say that every village, maybe, I mean, in Europe has <laughs> its own tradition. I mean, is that possible? I don't know. I, well, I think it is. And I think that actually goes back to a good point that people... Uh, particularly, I think, of our generation, forget that it, you know, France, Italy, Germany, their constructions, they were uh, of nationalism that is modern, and that they were originally, you know, self-ruled regions. And that, and a lot of these uh, food traditions and cuisine differences relate to those original regions, which were, for lack of a better term, dukedoms, right? 
No, I completely agree. And it makes me think back to uh, an interview I did with Armin Petrosian about caviar all these years back, where, you know, in the Black Sea, I mean, does the surgeon know uh, what the prescription, you know, or or it's from a different country? I mean, there's no, you know, borders in the sea. And uh, and it's exactly what you're talking about. These these countries are recent, um, and their their culture is not. Turning back to Cassoulet, I wanted to ask you: Is it possible? Because we've talked about we haven't used this word, but we're also a bit talking about terroir and regionalism, and you know that food has a certain taste, even just in where the the, the ingredients are grown. Can you even do you think you can find good cassoulet in America or do you should you really not bother and you should only, especially for the first time, have it in France? I think you can find great cassoulet in America. And this book tour is is proving that because almost at every um, event that we're having, I'm trying to find a chef to make cassoulet for us. And people are jumping in, not to, you know, continue the metaphor here, but, um, but I just had amazing cassoulet um, in Bridgehampton, Long Island, where chef uh, Jason Wiener created his own version of cassoulet. And it was not, um, you know, it was not typical. It was not conservative. He put kale in there, um, but it was delicious. And uh, and next week I'm going up to uh, Williams College and I have a wonderful young couple making cassoulet. And, you know, um, people look at my recipes and and then the chefs say, do you mind if I, you know, <laughs> and, and I love that. I love that because that that's really how I think cuisine evolves. Um, and, and Julia in her uh, cassoulet. Uh, section, she also gives us that ability, that freedom. Now, I'm, I just struck me, have you had cassoulet then made with bacon in the States as the one of the pork ingredients? Well, bacon, yes, or pork belly. Which is more or less the same yeah. thing, but I, I feel like yeah. that's also this one, some Americans may not be aware, but American bacon is distinct, and you basically can't get it exactly at anywhere else unless it's been flown over. And so it's one of, I, one thing having lived in Europe that Europeans might ask you to bring with you, uh, which has become harder to do, is bacon, because it is different. Um, and I was just thinking about the uniqueness of ingredients that are rich and complex and relate, but are distinct. Well, that's really, uh, it's really funny because, you know, the stories that I hear and actually something that's marked my children for life is the fact that I, you know, I always brought things back from France. Actually, I almost got caught, you know, having put uh, foie gras in one of my boots on my way back, <laughs> <laughs> back from Paris one one Christmas uh, vacation. Um, but I've heard very little about people bringing things over there. So I love that. Um, and, and I think that think, uh, bacon and pork belly work absolutely fine in cassoulet. Now, let's go back to France. And I was wondering this because I was trying to remember if I've ever had it or seen it on a menu. Can you get good cassoulet in Paris or is there no point or you will find people doing regional specialties? No, you absolutely can. And actually, I mean, I've had wonderful cassoulet at a place called La Siette in Paris, 
Um, I mean, all it takes is a creative, um, you know, passionate chef. You can have it anywhere, really. And I even know of a chef from Carcassonne who now lives in Japan and he makes cassoulet. And back to what you said about the broth being really important. And we were kind of talking about how it has a sort of peasant dish history. Is it also that you don't even need the finest or most refined meat ingredients? It's really the combination of of these things that have bones and, and the different kind of um, uh, those kind of materials that, that add a richness to a dish. Yes, I think it's the combination of things. I think it's also the fact that you want to make sure, um, and again, Julia talks about that, um, uh, not to use beans that are too old. Maybe some people don't realize that you, you know, you, you can keep beans a long time, but I mean, not 10 years. <laughs> you know? um, so, and, and something that's really dear to my heart is, is the use of fresh herbs. Um, because if there's a way to find fresh thyme, fresh rosemary, and a really massive bouquet garni, uh, you're going to give a sense of a grassy flavor to your cassoulet, and that's going to mix really well with the different meats. Got it. Good advice. So I was curious, I love that, and this is also very French, but but not unheard of in other parts of the world, that there's this Académie Universelle du Cassoulet, the, this Cassoulet Academy. And is the chef you talk about, Eric Garcia, is he one of the founders of it? Yes, he's he's the co-founder. And tell us what it is and, and what are you hearing from them lately? Well, uh, they might be a little sleepy right now because Eric Garcia actually has retired. And I think that they are in the midst of trying to find new leadership. But basically, these associations, and you find a lot of them in France. You find them in the wine world. Um, you find an association about, uh, you know, the defense of the truffle in the Rivranche in Provence. I don't know if you've heard of that. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of these different uh, groups. And in fact, what are they doing? They're defending their own terroir. That's where the word terroir comes in. They're defending the authenticity, the um, the way things were done, uh, the way things, ingredients were, you know, cultivated. Um, and it's, it's basically about a country's history. It's all about history. Well, I think it's also a reaction to globalization is when, when information and these traditions can flow and be altered and things like that. And I think we're seeing this a bit in America with the culture war there, there, there's a pushback to not dilute things or make them less special. And, and I, I feel like in, in France, there's, there's a real threat as more French people speak English than ever before and are fine with it. And that they feel, many people in France feel that their cultural history and traditions are, are kind of under attack and they have to defend them. Yes. And also against the fast food, because, you know, every city in France has many different fast foods nowadays. Um, and, and a lot of the um, a lot of the chefs and a lot of the culinary schools sort of, you know, rant against that. Yes. And, and, and many French people do, but someone's eating in all those McDonald's. They're not, they're not, they're well, well visited. Absolutely true. I think Julia would say, mon dieu. So. Mon dieu, mon dieu. <laughs> all right. We're going to take a break and we'll be back to hear Sylvie's Julia moment. 
Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she might have inspired them in their career. Sylvie, what's your Julia Moment? So my Julia moment is actually um, sitting here on my desk, and it is a La Russe Gastronomique um, from 1938 that was used during the shooting of Julie and Julia. And um, I was able to uh, buy this book through my friend Bonnie Slotnick, who has this wonderful used cookbook shop down in uh uh, in the village in Manhattan. And, um, you know, with Julie Powell passing uh, just a few months ago, I just uh, had to mention the fact that this, uh, this book here is, is now uh, in memory of Julia, but also of Julie. Oh, that's so lovely. Was Julie Powell someone you were friendly with? Um, no, I didn't know her, but I just, uh, you know, I just really enjoyed the movie. Um, a big Nora Ephron uh, devotee, and uh, I was just so struck by her, um, you know, untimely death. Oh, that's so nice, as were we at the foundation, because obviously um, she had a pivotal role in, in, in what she did in, in, in sustaining Julia's legacy, and it was very tragic to, um, to, to learn of her passing. So, yeah, thank you for that. And something, do you want to, maybe for those who maybe don't know as much, just kind of explain a little bit more about La Russe Gastronomique, what it is? So the La Russe Gastronomique was the first uh, dictionary, if you will, of, uh, of gastronomy. And what's interesting is that it was uh, written by a man named Prosper Montagnier, one of the earliest food writers, um, who was born in Carcassonne. So, uh, you know, there's a whole cycle in my obsession. Everything sort of leads to Carcassonne. Now, I think I'm not sure. I was looking something up in it recently, and it might have been cassoulet. And I was surprised to learn it's not that specific about cassoulet, I think. It doesn't, it, it sort of says it's a bean and stew dish of the region, I think. But it doesn't say, it, it doesn't say you should have these ingredients in your cassoulet, I don't think. Well, it's given. It's giving all three recipes, uh, the master recipes, the one from Toulouse, the one from Castelnaudary, self-proclaimed capital of cassoulet, <laughs> and, and the third one from Carcassonne. Um, but what I also just saw a little early, a little bit earlier is that there's a whole article on cassoulet under Languedoc, uh, but I don't know if that translated in the more modern editions of the La Russe Gastronomique, right? Because I think we're up to edition number eight, something like that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but there's something just really amazing about holding, you know, a book that uh, that was written in 1938. And it's a beautiful book. I know you can't see it, but um, it, it's just a, 
a gem. And I think for people who don't know, it's kind of a little bit more like a dictionary. It's like more of a reference book than a traditional, because it's very comprehensive, but then a traditional cookbook. But it is also a, 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 a very important tool for fr French chefs or people learning uh, French traditions. And I think it's um, also more than a tool. I mean, a tool, I think it's also a wonderful gift um, for somebody, you know, who's into food because, yes, there are recipes and there are stories and there's all these amazing images of, you know, how to cut up a rabbit or things like that. Um, I mean, it's, it's a real, um, it's, it's a fabulous uh, book. I really, I really love it. Well, I think Julia would appreciate you you bringing that up in your Julia moment. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Todd. Un plaisir. Thanks, everyone, for listening. For more from Sylvie, she's at Sylvie Begar on Instagram and Twitter. It's B-I-G-A-R. And it's at Sylvie.Begar on Facebook. And if you want to journey into the official world of cassoulet, you can check out academy-du-cassoulet.com. And of course, the book is Cassoulet Confessions, Food, France, Family, and the Stew That Saved My Soul by Sylvie Begar. It's out now from Hardy Grant Books. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. A reminder, there are new Julia Child video clips. Well, they're actually old clips, newly on Facebook. They're from The French Chef. It's at Julia Child on Facebook. Please follow at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. I'm at T. Shulkin on Instagram. The 2023 Taste of Santa Barbara is coming up May 15th to 21st. Follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for the latest news about events in and around Santa Barbara, including our upcoming special dinner at La Paloma Cafe on March 8th. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorny. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.